Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What was coaching in the NBA like in the 90s? Who was the father of the modern game? What kind of player was Billy Donovan in college? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today I'm pleased to bring on a uh, repeat uh, person who's come on the show before, so we'll call him a friend of the breakdown, and that is Stu Jackson who is the Senior Associate Commissioner for Men's Basketball for the Big East and also appears on NBA TV as an analyst and was also my former boss, full disclosure, at the University of Wisconsin when I was a, a lowly student manager and he was the head coach. So, so, Coach, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. But your description of being lowly, that's not accurate, man. And we couldn't have uh, done things without you guys. So appreciate the work. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I was just thinking of some just some random thoughts because it's been a while, right? It was just 93 and 94. And, uh, I'm, you know, as I'm racking my brains for just random memories, I thought I'd throw some out there for you to see what your reaction were and if you remember these things. So are you ready? Oh, boy, it's good to get dangerous. Okay, <laughs> all right, I'm ready. Well, first of all, there was a, a drill, which I still do to this day and still see most NBA teams do, uh, which I, I think we called it 90-2, and two, uh, where you had to do a full-court dribbling uh, layup line in two minutes. Do you remember, was it 90? 75? It was 85-2. Oh, 85-2. 85 85 okay. Yes. So, yes. and, and believe it or not, they still do this drill. Like I've seen multiple NBA teams do it. And it requires the managers to have, you know, two balls in each line. There's two, two lines. And so, of course, it started in the misses toward the end of the season. And, uh, and I didn't put the second ball in. So now there are only three instead of four balls going. And, um, it took a minute to figure it out, and it was clearly it was my fault. Now the funny thing was is I hadn't really spoke to you in a little while. It had been a while, you know, during that first season, so I wasn't even sure if you still remembered my name. <laughs> but <laughs> you, you turned to me, it's like, God damn it, Nick! You, you know, can't you do this right? And I and I actually took some solace. I'm like, oh hey, you remembered my name. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, Nick, I remembered your name, you know, I, I, you know, I made a point of trying to know everybody's name because, you know, as, you know, any, you know, good program, the key to your success has to be uh, from practice. And, you know, I know we had a lot of things going on. It was a very active, dynamic and competitive practice. And I wanted that kind of environment, but that drill is, is a very difficult drill. Uh, it really takes, uh, you know, from a player standpoint, you really have to sprint the entire two minutes when you're up. And you have to sprint also pass the ball accurately uh, twice to the managers, uh, you know, full length of the court in your line, and then make the second catch and lay it in left or right-handed, depending on which side we were doing it. So it, it was a tough, it's a tough drill to make, but uh, and we didn't always make it every day. 
Yeah. Well, it's funny because we talk about this on Twitter a lot. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but a lot of the old school coaches who, you know, if you miss a layup, they'll just stop the practice and make every the team run suicides. And so I rail against this now because I don't see how running a suicide helps you make layups. And that's a great example where I would use to say, okay, if your drills aren't, you know, having cardio built in to skill work, then I don't think it's worth doing. And it seems like that was a drill. Was that from Coach Patino? Did you get that way back in the day? Or where did that drill, the evolution of that come from? Actually, yes. That's the first time that I'd seen the drill or ran it, which was with Rick Patino. And you're right. I mean, if you're going to, um, you know, penalize your team and actually run them you know i always felt you shouldn't do it without a ball in your hand just simply do running for the sake of running uh, that's what they're doing outside at the track and it's not necessarily good for basketball especially when you run like like a suicide for instance which seems to be a bit of a random series of distances back and forth uh it doesn't really mimic a lot of what you see in a game um, I, in fact, I just saw, uh, uh, can we talk Big East for a second? I saw an article uh, about Bobby Hurley. I'm sorry, not Bobby. I'm sorry, who's now coaching at UConn? Which brother? It's Bobby, Danny right? Hurley. Oh, Danny. Sorry, it's Danny. Danny, I, you know, college. Danny Hurley. So yeah. I just read an article where Danny was, you know, making them run, you know, doing three-man or four-man weave and, and, and running suicides. And I, I just kind of scratched my head because, again, like we just said, these, those are the old-school drills that don't seem to really apply. And I, I certainly don't remember when you ran your practices. You know, you seem to be ahead of the game there uh, with, with avoiding things that don't completely mimic uh, what's going on in the game. Yeah, no, there's no, no question. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we believed at the time it should not only mimic, but even, you know, you want to make your drills a little bit tougher than actual game time, whether you're going five on four, or you may remember a drill we used to have called four, 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 which was three teams, four, four man teams apiece that was very dynamic that, you know, went back and forth. Uh, you know, playing each of the three teams against each of the other three teams and, you know, it was chaotic and you could add full-court pressure to it. You could do it in a half-court setting, but just something that makes it even more difficult to execute and think on your feet while you're tired. Uh, I think all those types of drills were ones that we tried to, you know, employ in practice because, you know, during the game, it helps you slow the game down. Well, not only do I remember four on four and four, but I, I used it as a staple almost every practice, A, because the kids loved it. But B, my favorite part of it was it's you're doing a point system, right? So if you score, you get a point. If you get scored on, you lose a point. Uh, and it was it was the best thing we ever I ever think I took from your practices. I even do it now where if they run an action out of our offense, it's a point even if you don't score. And so now all of a sudden the team mm-hmm. is like trying to run their offense in that chaotic, uh, you know, drill. Uh, you know, so yes, I, I do remember that, uh, and I don't see enough teams running it. If you want a quick overview, it's uh, imagine three teams of four, and then as the four guys come down, it's four on two. The other two guys are running in. I, please correct me if I'm not describing it perfectly, but uh, you know, uh, it's a great sort of got a fast break and half court all in one. Yeah, you're right. So you're right. Each team eventually comes down four on two defenders, but then the other two defenders enter the court from half court and they have to touch the center circle and get back into play as if they're you know running into transition defense and it also requires the two defenders back to actually play 
pretty solid defense and try to slow the ball so that their teammates can get back into play, and then you play four and four. Uh, yeah, I think it's a great drill. Yeah, so I love it. The kids love it. It's a great thing. I'm, I'll make sure to do a video on that to show people too, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give proper credit <laughs> for sure. Um, now, it's interesting because when I talk to teachers, and a lot of times I think what they should do is ask their students from 20 years ago things that they remember specifically from certain lessons. And I think that that might help them understand how to, you know, what about that lesson stuck in their brain longer than others. And when I was thinking about what you did in practice, it's weird. The one thing that I really remember, and I'm trying to remember, I don't know why, maybe you can help me, is when you taught zipper cut, you know, into a, a weak side screen on the, on the weak side after the zipper cut. I, I don't know why, but that's one of those things that stuck with me. I remember the day you taught it and how you put it in. And uh, I was just wondering if you could give us some insight into, you know, where you developed that and where you got that from and why you taught it. Yeah, well, at the time when I came to University of Wisconsin, um, you know, my more recent coaching background was real was from the NBA at that point. And, you know, the NBA was a little bit different than, you know, it is today in terms of style of play or the way that the game looked. But, you know, there were certain staples that you ran in half-court offense. And one of them was, you know, a series of sets around, you know, the zipper cut. And we would do different things out of the zipper cut, uh, whether it was a weak side pin down or a zipper cut to a pick and roll or, um, you know, a, a variety of different things. And, what, you know, what we were trying, I think the key, whatever you run, is that you just pay attention to detail and make sure that the players understand, like, what they're doing, why they're doing, exactly where they need to be on the floor, how they need to cut, where their eyes should be looking, where their body should be moving. And I think all of those things together are really what make any offensive uh, set work. So do you think that there's something particular about that that like just became memorable? I mean, the funny thing is, is, yeah, as I'm doing my breakdowns, all I see is zipper cuts every all over the place. It was what the Spurs would run to get Tony Parker coming around the court. And you're right. It's very uh, it has a lot of different options. So um, I don't know. Like, I, it, do you have any idea? Like, do you think it was maybe it was like a simple thing that would probably that's probably why it sticks easier than others? Well, I think it's a simple thing in terms of what the defense does. Mm -hmm. And it's not it's a it's a type of cut with a you know a, a zipper screen that's very difficult to deny. So yes. it allows you to get the ball at the elbow or to the middle of the floor in the you know the most dangerous area for the defense you know right away and early in the shot clock. And that's why you know I, I believe it's a staple in a lot of offense at some point, no matter what you run. Sure. And, and by the way, this, most people I'm sure who follow me listen to this know what that is. But, you know, it's when you cut from the, uh, the block up to the top of the key when the ball's on the wing. So just like the zipper cut is a great way to get into your offense, StockX is an even better way to get the hottest new sneakers as they're just hitting the shelves. StockX is a revolutionary new marketplace for buying or selling 100% authentic sneakers, streetwear, watches, and handbags. And here's the cool part about it. StockX uses the same principles as the stock market to make your purchases by giving you real-time market data for intelligent buying and selling. You'll see exactly how much an item has sold in the past and what it's selling for now. Best of all, StockX has removed the risk from buying and selling online. Total anonymity between buyer and seller. You'll never have to deal directly with a random buyer or seller again. 
StockX has experts that verify every item, making sure everything you get is 100% authentic. Visit StockX.com slash CoachNick now and you'll see what an incredible platform this is. That's StockX.com slash CoachNick. Now you know. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the fact that uh, so you've been on both sides of the equation here as a coach and also as the guy that, um, you know, is the commissioner or is the guy that has to deal with, um, you know, giving out <laughs> punishment, I suppose we'll call it. So do you mm-hmm. remember uh, it was back in the day? So let's just set the scene back in the day when, we, when you were coaching, Michigan had the, the Fab Five. Right. And we mm-hmm. had a game against them coming up and the game before at home. I don't know if you remember going with this. There was a fight on the court and one of mm-hmm. our guards Andy Kilbride you know as I recall like elbow the guy in the head and whatever it was a big melee and you know that was when those rules were about like if you come on the court you're going to be suspended for the next game and that was going to be for Michigan and I believe as I recall Michael Finley uh, who was uh, the star player at that time you know strayed a few feet onto the court do you remember this at all yeah I do uh, vaguely but I do remember it yeah. Oh, okay. Because because well, here's what I remember. I remember being in the locker room after the game, and we didn't have to. I didn't have to be very close to you to hear what you were saying. You were on the phone. I think probably I'm, I'm ostensibly to the, the Big Ten commissioner, whoever that was at the time. Just uh, very, I guess, most vociferously <laughs> arguing your point that he, he should not be suspended for that game. Does that? Do you remember that part too, or is that uh, is that hazy? Oh, I do remember that part. Yes, 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 I do. And at the time, you know, I mean, I didn't think my assistant coaches did a very good job of keeping guys back, mm-hmm. you know, on the, on the bench and off the floor. So I was probably, well, I was as upset at them as I was anyone else, uh, because I think it's a natural reaction for players when they see one of their teammates on the floor to try to get out there and support them. And it's really up to the assistant coaches to keep those guys back. And so in your persona, you're very calm and cool and collected. So I'm not so sure when people <laughs> here is, you know, maybe are aware when you were coaching, you you were all energy, all up and down. I don't know if you ever sat on the bench, sat down on the bench. Uh, and then certainly in that moment, it was, uh, you know, I guess the question is from the other side of the equation, if you're on that receiving that call, like, what do you have to do when you have a coach who is, you know, is so loudly pleading his case to you? Is, does, does that work? I guess is the question. Well, you know, I've been on that side many times when I was at the NBA as the head of operations for the NBA, and I've taken a lot of those calls from not only coaches but general managers and in that odd occasion even from owners. And the biggest key is you have to listen because when you're in those positions and you're talking to someone that's in a competitive environment, you have to understand that competition, uh, it changes all of us. It brings the best out in people and it brings the worst out in people. And I think as you're, if you're an administrator, you can't react and you really have to focus on listening. But then what happens after that is there's a process involved. And you have to go through your process and make the best evaluation of the incident on the floor that you can and make a decision that you feel is the right one. So while you listen and hear out coaches or, uh, you know, in college, you hear out an athletic director I think it helps them more than it does yourself because you got to listen and let them vent, and that's because of the competition. Oh, for sure, and, and I believe that you you made your case. I think that Michael Finley did play that last that that game against Michigan. He played, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so. he played, <laughs> and actually we played them pretty well that time. But you know, 
you know, they were they were a tough team. Obviously. Right, and I think before you had gotten there, that 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 Wisconsin team had beaten them uh, in the Fieldhouse uh, in a, in an upset. So there was all sorts of uh, you know anticipation for that. But yeah, that was Chris Weber and uh, uh, Jalen Rose and all those guys. So that was not so easy. Um, I think I remember like you know doing their doing their locker room, uh, having to take care of the towels and all that stuff. So oh, and by the way, just so, just you know you know you mentioned your your assistants at that time. Uh, your assistants were Stan Van Gundy. Sean Miller, to name two, Ray McCallum, uh, you know, those were some, you know, looking back on it now, that, that's like, uh, like, not, like, like Tom Landry and, um, oh my God, who was the old Packers coach? Vince Lombardi. <laughs> Vince Lombardi yeah. being on the Giants staff, right? Like that, you had some real, that's, those, those, I don't know if too many staffs had that, those good coaches as assistants, would you say? No, we you know we were very really fortunate. Uh, as you know, Ray McCallum actually was on the Wisconsin staff prior uh, to my arrival. But um, you know, I made the decision to keep Ray because I felt that uh, uh, one, I wanted some continuity from the old regime in terms of their relationship with players uh, and, and the recruiting base in the Midwest, and also you know I thought Ray was a very capable coach, which later on he proved. Uh, uh, to be right, you know, becoming a head coach at Ball State and uh, University of Detroit. And then Stan Van Gundy at that time was a head coach at Division II at the University of Lowell, and we brought him on staff uh, at the University of Wisconsin. And Sean Miller, I hired literally three weeks after he graduated from the University of Pittsburgh as my, what they called then, graduate assistant. So, um, yeah, no, and later on, Tim Buckley came, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the next year. So I was really fortunate, um, you know, to have some very high-quality, um, you know, young assistants at the time. Yeah, I think I, Sean and I used to play one-on-one after practice a lot, and I think he, he would say that uh, – I think you recruited him. That's how you knew him, right? That's right. I recruited him at Providence College. wasn't successful. He ended <laughs> up going to the University of Pittsburgh – but we stayed in contact with one another, even when he was an undergrad. Um, and I was always in contact with his father uh, because I was always looking for, you know, players in the Pittsburgh area. And he was a great resource. And, um, you know, uh, the spring of his senior season at Pitt, you know, Sean wasn't going on to the NBA, obviously. And I knew that he wanted to coach. And I called his father up in the spring and say, hey, listen, I got an idea. You know, you know, how would Sean like to come on as our graduate assistant in Wisconsin? And I think for Sean, it's an opportunity to be a grad assistant right out of college at a Big Ten school. And he jumped at the opportunity, fortunately for us. For sure. And, and you know, he's, he's gone very far at leading the Arizona team to a lot of, uh, you know, fantastic players and a lot of wins. But here's the thing. You didn't lose out that quick much because you at to Providence, you had – a little, you know, little guard uh, that I think we all recognize the name. When I say his name is Billy Donovan, Billy the Kid. Uh, really quickly, yeah. I thought, could you just give us a sense of, you know, what kind of player? Who would he compare to now uh, when he played at Providence? Well, that's a good question. I don't know who he'd compare to now, but he would compare to any of the smaller guards uh, that we have in the NBA. And I think that, you know, if Billy had come to the NBA, he played for. Uh, played for us at the New York Knicks for a little bit. He had a cup of coffee. But I think had the rules been different the way that they are today, perhaps Billy Donovan would have had a longer career, you know, in the NBA because of his ability to penetrate, his ability to shoot the ball from the three. Um, you know, he, he perhaps could have played in today's NBA. But, you know, it's interesting thing about Billy, when Rick Pitino arrived at uh, Providence and, you know, I arrived shortly after, 
one of the first issues that Rick had to deal with was the fact that Billy Donovan wanted to transfer. <laughs> really? He was going to transfer from Providence College to Bentley College, which was a um, Division II school uh, not too far from Providence College. And at the time, uh, Billy was, you know, slightly overweight. He wasn't in great condition, hadn't had a lot of success at Providence at the time. And we did not have a lot of scholarship players. And if for nothing else, Rick had to convince Billy to stay at Providence College because we didn't have any players. I think we only had like <laughs> nine scholarship players. So uh, not even enough for, you know, full practice. So fortunately for us and uh, even fortunately for Billy, he ended up staying in, at Providence. And what we didn't realize at the time was, you know, Billy Donovan's work ethic, which was off the charts. So he got himself in great condition. Um, started to work on his skill level uh, with a frequency that he had never done before under Rick Pitino. And, you know, he just started to blossom. And, you know, to, to our surprise, and we were surprised, don't get me wrong, that first year, uh, you know, not too far into the season, when we realized, oh, damn, this guy's not bad. <laughs> you know, yeah. And he went on to become Billy the Kid and the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, his senior year, he averaged about 21 points a game. But here's the thing that's interesting about that is he actually took seven threes a game and hit 41%. So it's mind-boggling how coaches back in the day would not let players shoot more threes. Not smart. There were coaches that wouldn't let tall players handle the ball or shoot from the outside. Not smart. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash breakdown to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply, so you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com breakdown. That's ZipRecruiter.com breakdown. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Why were coaches at that era and even into the 90s, why didn't they figure out this whole notion that the three-pointer is one point more than the two until now? Well, you know, for all the listeners out there, I'm going to tell you here today, the first person to do it was Rick Pitino. And, you know, I tell people this and anyone that are listening because I remember the day we had a staff meeting in the sauna, Rick liked to have meetings in the sauna to see who would sweat the most and, you know, fall off the quickest. But anyway, he got out his magnetic board and on the magnetic board started to do the math. And his premise was we weren't, you know, an exceptionally talented team. And if we were going to have an edge, mathematically, it made more sense for us to exercise a three-point shot than to shoot twos. Also, given the fact that at the time we didn't have a great post player. So he was really the first head coach in America that really made the three-point shot, um, you know, a major part of the offense, and he did it for mathematical reasons, which now everybody today says is analytics. And I'm here to tell you, 
Rick Pitino figured it out before anyone did. Wow. Now, I, you know, I kind of remember at Wisconsin, I don't think it was as much of a focus. Or am I forgetting that, you know, we didn't we – did we shoot a ton of threes? We shot a fair amount of threes, yeah, because we were on the break a lot. You know, our, our, our style of play was one of, you know, we full-court press, half-court press, three-quarter press, like to get out on the break. And we try to encourage, you know um, – you know, the players to shoot a lot of threes. But when we had Mike Finley, uh, you know, it, it was a little bit different animal. He can shoot the ball a little bit from the perimeter, but he was always the best athlete on the floor. And with him, we tried to get him to insert the ball into the paint area off the drive because he was very difficult to stop. Yes. I, and I also remember the best three-point shooter we had was a guy that I, I think and it's an interesting uh, dilemma because he was – this guy, his name was Andy Kilbride. He was our starting shooting guard. And when you watch him in practice, you might even think that he was the best player on the team. Uh, he would steal the ball. He'd run the offense. He'd nail threes. He'd drive all these things. But for some reason, he had a hard time sort of translating that to games. And I think that that was a struggle for you to kind of figure out as well, right? What can we do to get him to replicate practice? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, you know, and eventually he, he started to get it and be a little bit more productive. But you're right, he was a very, very good practice player, but eventually, you know, became a good, uh, you know, uh, game player. And, you know, it was frustrating to him. I mean, you know, I was frustrated, but it was even more frustrating to him. And it was something that we talked about at length. Uh, but he went on to become, a, a, you know, a, a very good player. Right. Was there one little key or some sort of piece of the puzzle that he kind of started figured out toward the end there that 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 unlocked some stuff? I think he needs just need to clear his head. I mean, I think all of us perform better with a clear mind. I mean, if if it was in today's game, Andy would have been the guy that I would have recommended like meditation and yoga uh-huh. because I really think that's what he needed in an effort to release his mind so that he started to have fun again. And, um, you know, I wasn't that smart back then, but, you know, we did talk about it, and I thought that that helped him some. Uh, fair enough, and that's true. I mean, you know, so close on some of these things to figuring out uh, where, what we are now, and I have to imagine in 15, 20 years from now, we're going to look back on these times and think, what were we doing then? So uh, do, you, do you have one minute to give us a brief, like, what's your one storyline for the NBA that's caught your, uh, caught your eye so far? This coming season? Yeah. I mean, boy, there, yeah, there's, there's several. I, I think, you know, of great interest is just what's going to happen with the Lakers and LeBron in the West. Um, I think who comes out of the East, whether it's the Sixers, the Raptors, or the Celtics, who appear to be the deepest uh, team. I'm also very intrigued. There's a sub-story, you know, how Kawhi plays in Toronto and, you know, what that means for the Toronto Raptors' future. And then if that's not enough, I mean, what's Boogie Cousins going to add to the Golden State Warriors? That's just, you know, amazing, uh, amazing story that uh, they're going to be able to put five all-stars on the, on, the, on the floor at one time. Great. Well, I, I only asked you that so I have some ideas for some videos coming up. So thank you for that. Uh, that was, that's a really great yeah. rundown and all very good questions uh, we're going to see. I, I, get, I would think that the most intriguing thing could very well be the LeBron and Lake with the Lakers and whether or not they make the playoffs because that just doesn't seem clear to me that they could do that just yet. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, it's not so much can the Lakers make the playoffs, but who do you knock out of the playoffs in the West because it's so deep and so strong? I don't know. And then you have Denver out there looming, who, to me, on paper, is, is a you know is a playoff team just missing last year, I think, by a game or two. So it's going to be a tall order for the Lakers. But listen, we've seen it before. 
We've seen LeBron take a group of players and raise their level of play and, uh, and, ex- and excellence you know, to a level that makes them a playoff team. And I sort of think he'll do it this year. Uh, I, it's hard to imagine he won't, so I, I will agree with that one. And also, uh, I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, uh, and giving us some insight that, you know, and terrific stories uh, from back in the day. Yeah, no, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nick. You got it. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Coach? I'm in. I'm all in. <laughs>